All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Yes, sir. Back on the line, I've got the great Jim Bovard. Wrote all those books, including Lost Rights and Freedom in Chains and The Bush Betrayal and Attention Deficit Democracy. And he really is the most accomplished libertarian journalist in our history. And it's cool, too, because he does this sort of, uh, you know, investigative punditry so that he can stay angry while also reporting new original facts and details and journalism as he does. The great Jim Bovard. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks, Scott. Thanks very much for your kind words. What, me? Angry? I'm a nice country boy. Yeah, there you go. Well, listen, I guess what happens is I read your articles in my voice, and so that's different. <laughs> well, you know, it's... <laughs> Uh, that's fine. I mean, uh, I appreciate you reading, and I certainly appreciate all the heck you, uh, you know, letting people know about them. So, well, uh, yeah. Um, I should have mentioned that you're a regular over at the New York Post these days, um, but you have been doing this a long time. And, you know, I might have told you this story probably off the air only if I did before, Jim, but in the 90s, I thought all of libertarianism was a certain orange magazine that didn't care about anything important at all. And, you know, like, oh, check us out, dude. We're pretty skeptical about this whole believing in Jesus means you get to live forever thing. Like, yeah, that's really skeptical. But, you know, I got I figured all that stuff out in third grade. What I'm more interested in is uh, Bill Clinton murdering people in Iraq and murdering people in Waco and Lisa's agents murdering people in Oklahoma City and his government covering all of that up. And um, the Gulf War illness and these poor soldiers coming home all poisoned from all different uh, things, apparently, from their time in Iraq War One. And as best as I could tell, libertarians didn't care about stuff like that. And so I was palling around with the Patriot Movement because at least they cared about the Branch Davidians. We don't have to agree on everything, but we have to agree on the most important things. And what happened to the Branch Davidians is the most important things. And then it turns out what I didn't know was that you sir, were holding down Waco for the Libertarian Movement all those years, writing for the Wall Street Journal and I'm not sure who all else, Playboy Magazine, I think. And well, I just didn't know the name. I did not know that there's this, you know, I did read the Wall Street Journal from time to time, but it just never uh, became, I might have even read a piece of yours or two or something, but it never became a thing that I knew that there's this guy Bovard out there who's really doing great work on this and, and representing libertarians well. So I didn't really even understand that there were hardcore, like serious hate government, not to put words in your mouth, but willing to fight about very unjust things type libertarians until, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. you know, antiwar.com and, and lewrockwell.com later on. So, um, you know, to sell you short, I'm acknowledging that I did that, you know, you were out there and I just didn't know it. Um, but you were, you know, um, setting a great example 
for, you know, what libertarianism is supposed to be about. In the same way as Justin Romando. You know, I started reading Romando. He wasn't writing about libertarianism other than like, come on, libertarians, we're all good on this stuff, right? But the articles were about what the neocons were doing to lie us into war and kill all these people and all these things. It was all this very detailed, fact-based, you know, activist stuff about the real world, about what's really happening and what we really have to oppose. And, you know, you do that same great kind of work and and all these years. And so thanks for that. But anyway, I'm enough praising you. The point is that these archives can be found at jimbovard.com. And you have this great archive, Bovard articles on Waco, Ruby Ridge, and gun rights. And that'll be in the show notes here. And it's this collection, Washington Times, Wall Street Journal, Playboy, American Spectator. And these go way, way back, uh, all through from 1994, uh, all through uh, the end of the 1990s. Sticking up for the truth, which is the same thing as sticking up for the Branch Davidians. So uh, really important stuff. And I've been digging through a bit of it. And so I was hoping we could talk about some of the things that you learned or certainly that you focused on as being, I guess, the most important points back then. Um, like, for example, the question of how the raid happened and, you know, the ATF's idea of what they were doing there, how it unfolded, and, of course, who fired first. Would you like to start with that and address, especially if you could, in context of the time, of how this story, when, when, how it was that you first, uh, you know, noticed, uh, you know, the reports of it or what you thought of it when you started looking at it or why you thought it was so important and what you learned about how it all unfolded there. Uh, okay. Uh, again, thanks very much for your kind words. And it's great to see how you're carrying the flag forward as far as uh, putting out very informative articles and books on uh, the U.S. foreign policy uh, fiascos. Um, I was following Waco. Uh, Waco went down at the time I was, you know, busting ass to try to finish up lost rights, the destruction of American liberty, just working around the clock. And uh, I was I was kind of jolted by the um, the, the ATF raid, February 28, 1993, kind of holy shit, what's going on there. Um, and then the FBI comes in and the FBI brings in the tanks and I have memories, uh, April 19th, 1993, I was getting beaten on the head by others. Where's the next chapter? And I was just pacing in my living room where the TV in the house was, smoking a cigar, you know, watching the tanks go smashing in again and again and again. And it was like, holy crap, I can't believe they're doing this. I think some of the people in the FBI at headquarters were also surprised at that. But uh, and then, uh, you know, I had some... I had some stuff, and then it was funny dealing with the book editors. Um, the uh, book was closing up for print around October '93, and I was elbowing and elbowing. Can we get a couple more cha uh, paragraphs here on Waco and the a chapter on guns, crimes, drugs, and snares? And um, you know, they were saying, "Oh my God, what do you mean you want to add more?" Oh, but this is really good. This is so important. Uh, so. And then later, and later, you know, I was able to find editors who were open to that. David Brooks at the Wall Street Journal was great. Uh, he later became a, uh, a um, pro-government columnist at the uh, New York Times. Uh, I was going to say David Brooks, as in David, David Brooks, Brooks. David Brooks. David Brooks, and and, and it's interesting because uh, Brooks was only there as the uh, editorial features editor for about a year, but and he was probably skeptical of me at first, but then he decided he liked my stuff. Uh, I did a piece on Ruby Ridge, 
just after Lewis Free said that they were not going to file charges against any of the uh, FBI agents involved. And the uh, piece was no accountability at the FBI was a headline. And it talked about how it certainly looked like uh, Vicki Weaver was murdered by the FBI sniper. And the chief of the FBI, Lewis Free, counterattacked wrote a long letter to the uh, Wall Street Journal, which they published, and, and and I wrote a response to that. And I appreciate that Brooks didn't throw me under the bus as far as, uh, you know, oh, the FBI attacked him, so we can't publish him anymore. Brooks was very good. I did uh, a couple pieces on Waco for him after that, another piece or two on Ruby Ridge. Uh, they were very good at that time. So, but no, it was, it was fascinating to me to see how, um, first of all, to see how Waco went down and then to see how the media reacted. Uh, the, uh, uh, Janet Reno became a national hero because she went on, was a nightline and said, I take responsibility. But, you know, she also said, but it wasn't my fault. It was all David Koresh's fault for wanting to kill those people, something like that. But, but there was a stampede by the media to put a halo over her head. And that was part of the general, um, general whitewashing a federal law enforcement activity there at Waco. And the first polls showed very high public support for what the FBI had done. And these are the kind of polls that make me skeptical or skeptical about democracy and humanity. And, you know, um, but uh, as time went on, as people um, looked past the, uh, um, the, um, the pro-government storyline, a lot more Americans became skeptical. Uh, and there was a building, uh, a growing push to investigate that. Uh, then along comes April 19th, 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing. It's interesting. I was at a protest at the um, Justice Department. I was walking around downtown on that morning, and uh, I, I heard there was going to be a protest by some gun owners and gun gun rights groups and um, at the uh, Justice Department uh, because of Waco anniversary, second anniversary. So I got there and there was uh, some journalist comes up and says, uh, says to the chief of the group, hey, I heard your boys were, um, were behind that uh, bombing in Oklahoma City. And the guy laughed, no, no, we had nothing to do with it. I think perhaps people at that point didn't realize how serious it was, but people have forgotten how President Clinton used that to demonize any opposition to government and demonize any criticism of government. It's very similar to what the Biden folks have been trying to do for the last two years as far as shutting down criticism of the FBI or of the, um, you know, Biden's entire power grabs. So um, maybe I should pause and wait for more specific questions since I'm rambling like hell here. No, it's good. And it's my fault because I asked an overly broad thing in the first place. So um, we'll get back to who shot first and all that in a second. But I want to uh, pick up on one thing that you said there about the Oklahoma bombing and its relationship to Waco and especially the way it was made to rationalize and justify Waco after the fact. As though, not that anybody ever said this, but it might as well have been. Essentially, the case was that David Koresh had gone forward in time, him and all of his children too, and had blown up that federal building. And so, of course, it was justified that the FBI would attack them and kill them in justified, you know, righteous retribution for their aggression. When, of course, the Branch Davidians were all dead 
and couldn't possibly have blown up that building. They didn't have anything to do with that. And even if somebody yes. claimed to do that in their name, the guy who claimed to do that in their name was not a member of their group. He was some Nazi. And that doesn't right. reflect on them at all, whether yeah. you know some third party was angry about it. And yet that became such a slogan. Is You know, really... This to me is almost the most important part of it is seeing the way that they really can just almost hypnotize people into saying these certain phrases like, well, the president must have secret information that we don't know about. That was they, 20 years ago today. Some lady in my cab told me that. Well, wow. the case for war so far is bogus, but we got to be doing it for a reason. So the president must have secret information that we don't know about. The same thing here. You go, man, something, something, opinion about Waco. And they go, oh, yeah. Well, what about Oklahoma City? You know, it's like someone poked them with a prod or gave them a dog treat or something. And they have to say it every time. What about Oklahoma City? What about Oklahoma City? Well, what about Oklahoma City? Government employee lives matter more than civilian ones. Is that your point? Or what? Yeah, it's wrong when somebody massacres 100 people. That's what about Oklahoma City, right? It's the same about Waco. But instead, it becomes somehow the Branch Davidians' fault. And so whatever happened to them, including gassing and shooting and burning them to death, doesn't count. And there are probably people who are listening to this right now who should admit that that's you. You did that. You said that. What about Oklahoma? When somebody said something correct and righteous in defense of the innocent lives at Waco. Because that's how easy people are to control. You just show them some crap on TV and they'll repeat it. Unprovoked yep. attack in Ukraine. So, from somebody who thought that Ukraine was a part of Russia the other day. Well, okay, so to take a step back, you were talking about the um, tying Oklahoma City to uh, Waco, there was a uh, letter that uh, Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin sent on uh, July 6th, 1995, just before the House hearings on Waco. And, and he said that uh, Waco, federal action at Waco, quote, cannot be understood properly outside the context of Oklahoma City, even though Oklahoma City happened two years afterwards. And it was like, um, it was like expo facto, um, you know, expo facto exoneration. Yep. Um, and, and, and you had president Clinton saying that, you know, there was no need for any hearings on Waco because we had an independent, an inde independent panel review what the, what the ATF did there. Yeah. Independent chosen by Bill Clinton's buddies. Seriously. Um, well, and so, you know what, I'm going to put that in my notes and maybe we can get back to that in a minute. The sure. the different uh, so-called uh, ind independent and, and not independent investigations, the Treasury and Justice reports and all that, because there are some important aspects to cover about that. But so let's rewind a little bit and just talk about, you know, I don't know, we assume too much about what people know. This was 30 years ago. Um, so can you just describe a little bit about who is this sect? What are they doing out there in, you know, the northeastern outskirts of Waco, Texas, Jim? Well, you know, it, it was people in Texas, so you shouldn't have high expectations of them. Oh, man. That's <laughs> rough. No, so this, uh, this is a, uh, a group that was an off offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist and 
They had been there for decades. At some point, some years before 1993, David Koresh kind of took over the group. Um, he was doing a lot of, um, um, he was, he had, he had painted, painted himself as a type of religious savior. Uh, I think many, if not most of the people in the group bought into that message. Um, and, uh, he was investigated, I think at least a couple times for allegations of child abuse. And there was not uh, grounds for prosecution on that. That did not stop the feds from later trying to, uh, justify, uh, killing the children to prevent child abuse. Um, but so what happened, the, uh, you know, the, uh, branch of Indians, they were outspoken in favor of guns in the second amendment. They were also went to a lot of gun shows in Texas and probably elsewhere, maybe not elsewhere. I don't know what the federal laws were at that point. If they had laws, licenses in other States, uh, nearby. But, uh, so what happened was there was an ATF agent, July, 1992, went to Koresh's gun dealer, and ask him whether uh, the, the Davidians could be violating federal law by co uh, converting semi-automatics to full automatic firing without a, uh, without a federal license. The, the dealer picked up the phone and um, called uh, David Koresh, and Koresh invited the ATF agent to come and do an inspection of the Branch Davidians' home. I mean, um, you know, he's trying to settle the issue right there. The federal, the ATF agent said no. Instead, they went and launched this massive investigation, and um, there was a search warrant, uh, which they used to uh, justify the preemptive attack on the Davidians. A congressional report said that that that's application for the search warrant contained an incredible number of false statements. One of the reasons uh, that the uh, ATF said the search was justified because someone had seen a Gun Owners of America video criticizing the ATF at the Branch Davidians' residence. Yeah, well, sounds like probable cause to me. Or, hey, an objective, a reasonable belief. Yeah. Um, so, listen, I mean, it seems strange that, um, well, uh, you know, the ATF, they knew already, right, that this guy didn't have fully automatic weapons. He had these Hellfire triggers. Right, which is, you know, I guess like the equivalent of a bump stock, something that sort of kind of approximates automatic fire. But they had been Not shooting with him, right? They knew what yeah. he had and didn't have already. Well, and, and and the thing that's fascinating, and it's, you know, there were so many levels of cover-up on this case. Uh, so what happened is the ATF uh, got the search, search warrant, and then they had, what was it, 76 uh, uh, heavily armed agents on a cattle trailer came in and basically and attacked the Davidians' home on a Sunday morning without pretext and without warning. But a huge rationale for that was ATF claimed that it wasn't possible to arrest uh, Koresh outside of his house. That quickly was exposed as BS. But what we didn't know until five or six years later, uh, thanks to federal former lawyer a uh, David Hardy and his uh, FOIA request, was that nine days before the ATF, 76 agents attacked the Davidians' home. Um, several, or two ATF agents who the Davidians recognize as undercover agents knocked on the Davidians' door and asked David Koresh if he wanted to go target shooting with them. Uh, so David Koresh, another guy, joined them, and the four of them went out planking, and they uh, talked about the second uh, about the Second Amendment and self-defense and stuff like that. So, and... If the ATF wanted to, it would have been easy to slap the handcuffs on right there. You've got a gun, you've got two agents, boom. 
it's a slam dunk. But uh, instead of doing that, they wanted to do their Showtime uh, high-profile raid, uh, followed by a couple of TV uh, news crews. Yeah. You know, it's really unfortunate, too, that that morning when the agent was there and then left and, you know, I guess the... um, the uh, news cameraman had told the Branch Davidian postman that this was all going down and this and that. And so the guy went to leave and I don't know if Koresh called him out like, look, I know you're an ATF agent or whatever, but it was clear between the two of them. And he yeah. says, you know, good luck, buddy, out there or whatever. That right then, Rodriguez could have said, look, man. You should just come with me. We can defuse this whole thing. I'll go ahead and arrest you now. I'll be in trouble later. But we got to keep this raid from happening. Somebody could get hurt. Eh, something like that. And David Koresh could have done the same thing. You know what, Robert? You should just take me in right now before this thing gets nuts. And then that way your guys can walk in here instead of running in with their guns drawn kind of thing. Because he could anticipate what was going on. They knew there was a raid coming. This was not going to be men in three-piece suits knocking on the door, um, so to speak. And so it was a real failure on both of their parts to defuse this right then, really. Not that really the Davidians had any responsibility for it, but, you know, I don't know. I think it's important too, and I want to nail this down because I knew this anecdote, but and I know David Thibodeau told me this, but I want to really verify this. Um, I know that he left with a truck full of guns, but the way I remember learning was that Paul Fatta had left the morning of the raid, like at seven in the morning before the raid at nine, um, with a dually pickup truck with a camper shell and towing a U-Haul trailer full of rifles, both the shell, both the, the camper and the, the bed of the truck and the U-Haul trailer. So this is hundreds of guns, hundreds of rifles. And to me, well, you know what? Give or take the damn U-Haul trailer, seriously, like even just the truck full. Uh, to me, you have either the story of Waco and the Branch Davidians and the raid and all this, or you have the story of the Branch Davidians and the raid and all this, including the fact that some guy left with 99% of their armaments that morning to drive down here to Austin to do a gun show and sell guns right there in broad daylight in public in front of everyone at his legitimate gun business. And once you know that part of the story, doesn't that change the entire story? That it's now you can't even pretend... You can't even pretend for a minute to entertain the idea that, oh, yeah, these people were arming themselves up for some dangerous action, which the government did claim. They're like, oh, Koresh is mind control over these people. They could have marched on downtown Waco. He could have used them as a weapon to take over something or attack somebody or this kind of thing is what they claimed. But, geez, that's funny because he told his buddy Paul, okay, Paul. Good luck out there selling guns and making money today, buddy. As his buddy Paul drove away with all of their guns, almost all of their guns that morning. And it's just amazing to me that nobody ever really dwells on that. But to me, that's like the crux of the whole thing. That changes the whole thing from, you know, you might as well change like which police agency did the raid or whether it was night or day or snowing or not or something. Like, so it's just, it's an entirely different story with this guy leaving with all the guns that morning, you know? Yeah. Well, this is something that's gotten very little focus by, uh, most of the Waco commentators. Yeah. 
And it's unfortunate because I just think, to me anyway, it just seems like it's just the crux of the thing. It just shouts their innocence right off the bat there. On one hand, they're arming up for Armageddon. On the other hand, clearly they're not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, well, th there were so many farcical elements in the uh, federal storyline, um, especially after the uh, um, shit hit the fan with the initial raid, and uh, you got yeah. four dead ATF agents, and you got to find scapegoats real fast, and you know th there was um, yeah. Go back to that, by the way, because that was the original question way back when was about who fired first, because it does matter a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, and the uh, it you know the. Um, telltale thing on that was that the uh, feds said that the um, Davidians fired first. ATF claimed that they had a uh, video proving that. Eh, too bad that video somehow vanished into the either. So, uh, but uh, what happened was that the, the ATF agents, according to, I think, at least one, if not two or three of their testimony, the shooting started when they pulled up and killed the uh, Branch Davidians' dogs prior to uh, assaulting the building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you go and you shoot a Texan's dog, you know, not a good idea. So, I mean, I was raised in the mountains of Virginia. You go around shooting people's dogs, you know, you're going to have a lot of trouble. So uh, that was one storyline of how the um, shooting started. Another one is that the, uh, the, the, uh, the ATF fabricated a drug nexus claiming the Davidians had a, a meth lab in their basement and use that to get military equipment and assistance for their attack on the Davidians. And the uh, ATF used a National Guard helicopter, according to some of the Davidians, that helicopter was passing over the Davidians' house and firing into it. And, and they think that those might have been the first shots that were fired? Uh, I've heard, you know, I've heard different things from different folks. Okay. Uh, so I think you might find a better source on this than me. Okay. Well, fair enough. I mean, we know for a fact that they did fire from their M16s from those Huey helicopters, uh, at least at some point. And in fact, that I believe it's a fact that three of the six dead Davidians were killed by helicopters. Winston Blake was inside and, um, I'm sorry, I always forget their names, but there was the guy in the water tower, um, and then there was a, a guy on the third floor uh, who possibly was trying to shoot at the helicopters that they killed him. Um, and and uh, the lawyers, uh, Dick DeGarren. Oh, no, it wasn't Dick DeGarren. It was, this is, I, I just reread this in your thing. It was the other lawyer whose name escapes me, talked about he was a Marine, and he saw all the incoming bullet holes in the ceiling. And in the front door. And he knew because he was a Marine in the war. And I think in Vietnam, I was like, I'm telling you, that was incoming, you know, fire rounds there. You could see. It's just too bad that they lost the door. I know. I'm sure they tried their best. Uh, and look, I, I honestly don't think it's hyperbolic to suspect that um, that's why they burned the house down. It's because the house itself was defense exhibit A. And once they knew that Koresh was ready to, you know, write down his final version of the seven seals and all this stuff, they decided that they weren't going to wait for that and let that happen. They were going to go ahead and make their move then and destroy the place so that the people wouldn't be able to prove that they were defending themselves. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's, I'm, uh, uh, you mentioned there were several new books out on Waco. I haven't looked at them yet, but um, I hope uh, more truth can come out on this. Yeah, me too. All right, so 
Um, one of the things that you wrote about, what time is it? We still got a little time. Um, tell me about, uh, this is something that I guess I could have thought of, but it never did occur to me. But I, this is a whole thing that you had details on was that during the time of the fire on the last day there, they obviously had all these uh, recording devices in there. And of course, we've heard the clips of somebody saying, okay, pour it, which is evidently them talking about a Molotov cocktail at six o'clock in the morning, you know, taken out of context. But then you talked about how they admitted that they edited those tapes and to a significant degree. Do you remember about that? Uh, no. All right. Well, um, I just read it on your site. So I'll tell you what okay. you wrote was that they admitted that they edited out all the sounds of the children screaming for their moms uh, yes. as they were killed. The Times reported that Mike DeGarren demonstrated that 100 hours had been reduced to one hour. And part of it was people praying and children calling for their okay. parents. I Fine. said screaming. Well, that's not right. Yeah. There was so much evidence that the feds covered up after the, uh, April 19th fire caused by the FBI. Uh, and there were audio tapes. And uh, back in uh, May two, 1995, Attorney General Janet Reno was trying to whitewash the uh, FBI by uh, Janet Reno claimed there were words that were tape recorded while they were spreading the fuels to ignite the fire. The Branch Davidian's words were, were captured on tape. However, there were a lot of controversies about those audio tapes from inside the compound from the federal listening devices. At the trial in 1994, uh, federal prosecutors put out a transcript that they said was from the electronic listening devices inside the compound, claiming that it showed a Davidian suicide scheme. But but the, uh, the defense uh, attorneys challenged that, and the government's audio expert admitted that he had altered the transcripts after meeting with Justice Department officials. New York Times reported the uh, Davidian's lawyer showed that more than 100 hours of FBI tapes from the compound had been reduced to a single hour of excerpts by the audio ex expert for the prosecution. And this, this defense lawyer says what we didn't hear today was from the transcripts such as People praying as the tanks were smashing, bashing in their homes, or children calling out for their parents as the FBI was crushing their house. Yeah. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey, guys. I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Well, no wonder they edited that out. Just like uh, it's in the rules of engagement that they 
sent in camcorders and said, here, tape yourselves being crazy, Jim Jones, uh, you know, Heaven's Gate lunatics, so we could put you on TV. And so they all filmed each other, and then they sent the tapes out, and the FBI buried them. Because if they put them on TV, then people would have seen that, hey, wait a minute. These people aren't crazy Heaven's Gate lunatics at all. They're regular people. Why are we doing this? So yep. they covered that up, too. Yep. Um, and, of course, they didn't want tapes getting out of the children calling for their parents as they're being killed by the FBI tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles. But same damn difference if you're a civilian on the receiving end of one of them. That's for sure. I mean, they're tracked vehicles with guns on them. Um, and anyway, so, uh, what is this? Dang clock. Okay, good. We're doing okay. Um, so can we talk about the origins of the fires here? Because you really develop, you know, not conclusions, but definitely possibilities and, and reasons to suspect. One thing that I didn't realize, Jim, was that, uh, as you wrote here, that they had admitted that they had thrown in flashbang grenades on April the 19th. And I knew that uh, Hardy and McNulty had found those flashbang grenades in the evidence lockers where they had been mislabeled as silencers. But uh, I did not realize, that's an important footnote for keeping, that they had admitted they had thrown in flashbangs. But don't worry, they said, Jim, that the CS gas is not flammable, right? Yep, yep. Well, and uh, it, it's it's important because the uh, a, a crux of the FBI um, self self absolution was that the um, that the flashbangs, as you said, were were not flammable. And it, it was not until Mike McNulty I, in 1999, going through the evidence locker held by the Texas Rangers, found pyrotechnic devices the FBI had fired at the Davidians' home on April 19th during the assault. And that uh, that caused such an uproar that it forced Janet Reno to appoint a special counsel uh, who was a bootlicker, but that's another story. Uh, so there were all kinds of things that, that, that which, which came out. And it's interesting looking at the details of the FBI assault. There were a lot of warning details um, on the CS gas that uh, was used um, it was not used, it was not allowed for indoor use. Uh, it had been, uh, there were a number of Palestinians had been killed when the Israelis and the occupied territories had used it in, um, to, uh, suppress protests. And I think shooting inside of houses were, was where people passed away. Um, but there were, you know, there were all these warnings from Dow chemical, you know, you weren't supposed to use this in uh, closed circumstances. There were experts, um, experts who warned that they, um, um, there were, there were very few studies, um, you know, indicating that this was safe, but it's interesting that the, that the FBI, the, the FBI portrayed itself as an innocent victim after the fire broke out, but it was the FBI plan all along to destroy the building, to destroy the building where there were 80, 80 or more civilians, uh, 90 uh, women, children, men. And it wasn't like it was by accident. And prior to the fires breaking out, the FBI had, had collapsed 20% of the building. They were well on their way. Uh, so, um, and, and uh, yet, you know, the FBI kept broadcasting throughout the day on loudspeakers, this is not an assault. 
You know, uh, I think David Hardy did a book by that title. So, yeah, man. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't realize this. I knew that it was banned by the chemical weapons convention, CS gas. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that that was signed by president Bush one week before Bill Clinton was sworn in to replace him in January of 1993. And I didn't so, realize that either. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, it would be against the law for America to use them against Iraqis, but they can use them against Texans. Yeah, there's there's a lot of loopholes in the uh, in international arms treaties that uh, that let governments use weapons on their own people that they could not use in a, a foreign war. Yeah, of course. It's a paradox. Yeah. Well, you got to test these things out on somebody, you know. And it, it was part of what was fascinating to me was to see how the FBI, how the Clinton administration, FBI, Attorney General Reno, how they, you, you know, came up with storylines that always made the government look like it was an innocent victim. Oh, all these people killed themselves. wasn't our fault. Janet, you know, there were congressional hearings, July 1995. Janet Reno testified on the last day. She was pressured about why she had um, unauthorized using these 54-ton tanks that smashed into the Branch Davidians' home. And Janet Reno said that she didn't think of them as a military vehicle. They were instead just like a, uh, like a good rent-a-car. And um, it's fascinating that she would say that. That shows her thinking. That shows the thinking of federal law enforcement. But there was no media reaction to her comment, except for my article the next day in the Wall Street Journal, which is like, what in holy Hades is this? Yep. I think I think I suggested using the um, the tank rent a car in the headline, but they said no, we don't need to do that. So, yeah, but you, um, I'm sorry, I remember when Rules of Engagement debuted. We went and saw it at the Dobie Theater Mall, Dobie uh -huh. Mall Theater. If I could speak English, we went and saw it at the Dobie Mall Theater in 1997, and at that clip, I remember the crowd was just gasped. It was just unbelievable. And she even does this weird thing where she goes. And this weird kind of thing with her throat after she says it, where it's just extra disgusting. Just, what are you talking about? Are you talking about? And in fact, the guy says, you're talking about a tank knocking down a house full of people. And she goes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was, uh, there was a moment earlier in the, um, in the, uh, in her testimony, the FBI and justice department tried to exonerate themselves for using the uh, CS gas, um, inside the home of the Davidians, they were saying, well, uh, the uh, people in there had gas masks, so, you know, I assume that they were fine, but but there weren't gas masks that would have fit young children. And someone brought one of the gas masks and put it on the table, her witness table next to her, and she just uh, brushed it off and let it fall on the floor. So it's like, you mm -hmm. know, it was like it was, uh, she was, she had had so much smoke blown up her butt at that point that, that she thought she was justice incarnate. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the point, too, right? She's some idiot. She didn't know. And these FBI agents are telling her what, and she's going, okay, uh, you guys say so. Uh, and, of course, that makes no sense, right? Like, oh, don't worry. They all have gas masks. Well, then how is this supposed to work then? They all have gas masks. And the whole, the whole point is that the poison gas is going to make them uncomfortable and want to seek fresh air, supposedly. Something like that, they said. If they could escape, you know, from the collapsed building all around them and on top of them. One damn paradox after another. I'll tell you. Um, 
And listen, you also pointed out something that I don't think I'd ever heard this, Jim, before, that um, Janet Reno had changed her excuse for the raid. Oh, yes. This is huge. This is freaking huge. Um, so so at the time that uh, Jan of, of the uh, final federal assault at Waco, Feds were saying, well, you know, they they had this excuse and they had that excuse. To flash forward two years later, after the Oklahoma City bombing, and after there was more pressure on uh, the Justice Department to uh, provide answers, Janet Reno gave a speech in front of in front of a bunch of federal prosecutors, and she announced that the first and foremost reason for that final FBI assault was that law enforcement agents on the ground concluded that, that the perimeter had become unstable and posed a risk that, that, that individuals sympathetic to Koresh were threatening to take matters in their own hands and basically attack the federal agents from uh, all sides. There was no evidence of this. She was just pulling that out of her ear, and uh, it was completely brazen that she would say that. But like everything else that she made up, she got away with it. Mm-hmm. And it's such an obvious lie, because obviously they would just arrest anybody that they thought was, what, the Michigan militia was going to come down there and go to war? Come on. Yep. Yeah. Well, and it was, it, it was, this was the same speech in which Janet Reno talking to federal prosecutors was, was very emphatic that uh, it is unfair, it is unreasonable, it is a lie to spread the poison that the government was responsible at Waco for the murder of innocents. Hmm. This, uh, this was their um, pushback in 1995, absolute total self-exoneration. Right. Yeah, and, you know, acting all moralistic about it, too, that how dare you go so far as to say otherwise? Well, geez, I've seen the FBI's own forward-looking infrared footage of them massacring these people. And if they want to argue that that's not FBI hostage rescue team agents in that footage, then they can only argue that it's Delta Force Combat Applications Group Team B instead. And it's most likely a mixture of the two, but there's no question that you can see men get out of the tanks and fire machine guns at the house as it's burning down. Guilty. Well, um, um, yes. And what can you say? There's no other explanation. I mean, if it was just a flash, that'd be one thing. But this is flashes on the ends of machine guns being held by men who just got out of a tank. So, yeah. That's muzzle flashes from a machine gun, you know. Um, But so, now, I wonder in your coverage back then, did you delve very deep into the presence of the Delta Force? On April no. the 19th and their role there, or no. even before that? No, I mean, I was uh, part of, um, I, I heard the allegations, you know, I was chasing so many other rabbits at that point. Uh, Waco was on my radar screen, but there was Ruby Ridge, there was, you know, um, 20 or 30 different excerpts from Lost Rights I was pushing to Playboy and a lot of other places. Sure. Uh, so I didn't uh, do the in-depth investigation into Waco that people like Mike McNulty did. So, uh, But I was happy to write about what they found. Sure. Well, and, you know, you did plenty of, own, of your own, if not, you know, real gumshoe stuff, at least collecting footnotes and clips and admissions and major points. As I've brought up on the show already here, you know, quite a few 
that I yeah, didn't know so, about before. So, yeah, you know, so, you're always doing great work. If, if nothing else, on the second hand, scooping up all the stuff that matters the very most, you know. Yeah, well, a part of what I was a part of what I was doing back then, and still do now, is uh, pay attention to the words of the government because there was that Janet Reno speech I had a couple quotes from on May fifth, nineteen ninety five. I don't think that that ever hit the newspapers, but I was able to get a transcript of it, and all of a sudden, it's it's a whole different way to frame Waco. There were a lot of a lot of comments that federal officials made from 93 onwards that if you take that and juxtapose those quotes with what, with what later came out, then it's jaw-dropping to see the amount of uh, federal falsehoods. And um, I, was, you know, seek, I was seeking first to find out what the government did and second to stop people from being so deferential to the latest federal uh, storyline because – you know, how many times can the government change its storyline on Waco and still be credible? Yeah, seriously. Um, well, and you know, I kind of, I, this is something that we were talking about at the beginning there about their credibility, that people really did believe in this stuff at the time. And, you know, I want to get to the truth. You didn't believe it, did you? No, I sure didn't. And in fact, you know, because I'm a skateboarder, so the first time I ever met a cop in the wild, I was cured of any respect for any government employees ever for the rest of my life. That's it. Vendetta forever. So I remember, you know, you talked about you remember the day of the first raid. I do, too. I remember watching on TV and I think the first thing I saw was they were on the roof trying to get in that window. And my you know how you see a you're driving, you see a plastic bag floating by out of your peripheral vision. and you, yep. You're not sure if it's a cat or what at first, you know, kind of. So. My very first thing is like, I thought I was looking at a hotel and it's like the second floor, but outside balcony, kind of outside the doors, you know, something like that, like a little motel type thing. And like, no, that's not quite right. And then the TVs explain, this is a church that the cops are raiding here. And of course, they're all dressed up like soldiers and all that. So, you know, I remember being pretty impressed about their brutality right then. And then the day they were burning it, I was with my friend John and we went to his house and... um we go in the front door and his mom goes, look, they're burning it. They're burning it. And I go, who's wow. burning it? And she goes, well, the, the TV says they're burning it. And I go, bullshit, man. You know, wow. they'll never show us the back of that house. Those cops are killing those people, man. You know, they're sick of this shit and they're just killing them. And she's like, yeah, I guess you're probably right. And I just wow. always felt that way from that moment on. There's no, well, and of course, all the evidence came out. Again, the forward-looking infrared footage proves it. It just proves beyond any doubt. Uh, of what is happening there. So those aren't Branch Davidians getting out of those Bradleys and shooting their fellow churchgoers there. Um, you know, those are cops or soldiers that are doing that. And um, so, yeah, that is, you know, always the way I felt about it. But, you know, I was, um, I've told this story a lot of times, but I think it's important that the housewives of Northwest Austin, Texas, wanted those people dead. My job was wow. sacking groceries at the Albertsons at that time. And the consensus was, he said he was Jesus, let's nail him to a tree. And if well, there's a bunch of women and children in, in our way, then tough. I say, go in there and end it. That's what they would all say. Go in there and end it. Go in there and end it. Again, with this minor bird stuff. Secret evidence that we haven't seen yet, but it must be there. Go in there and end well, it. Go in there and end it. But that means machine gun the people, you know? And these are Texans. Well, these people are 100 miles up the road. 
But they're a foreign nation. They're Iraqis, dude. You could have dropped a nuke on them. And the, pe- the housewives of Northwest Austin would have been happy with that. And people nowadays try to pretend that, oh, no, all right-wingers were good on it. It was just the Democrats that weren't. That's not true. Right-wingers were all on the cops' side. You'd have had to been part of the patriot movement or the conspiracist right or the militia movement or the libertarians to be good on this. You know, G. Gordon Liddy talked a little bit of smack, but overall, Rush Limbaugh and, and Rush the Limbaugh Titans of is, Radio, they were bad on yeah, this. They well, were pro-cop. Yeah, uh, Rush Limbaugh is a perfect example here because uh, we, when Janet Reno testified on Capitol Hill just after the uh, fire, final assault, all the dead people, um, senators lined up to kiss her boots. They wanted to be photographed with her. Pretty much the same in the House, except for Congressman John Conyers, Democrat out of Michigan, I think Detroit area. And Conyers just hammered Reno for what she had done. And Reno broke down in tears. And really? Rush Limb- uh, and, Ru- uh, and Rush Limbaugh responded by beating up John Conyers. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because he's actually horrible in the movie, in Wake uh, the John Rules Conyers? of Engagement. That's okay, interesting. interesting. Um, I don't. He, he was probably not good in the 1995 hearings, but there was a, maybe an appropriations hearing late April, early May 1993, in which Conyers, uh, you know, smacked Janet Reno around for the use of deadly force against wow. civilians, and she broke down in tears. And Rush Limbaugh jumped on Conyers. Other people jumped on Conyers. It was Conyers' finest hour, and he's someone right. who had a. He's he's someone who was, I think, an opponent of the Patriot Act and said some good things, but he also signed off a lot of very bad federal policies. But anyhow. Yeah. Well, you know, to the point about the conservative right, you know, that they were just thin blue line on this. The cult of law enforcement is powerful. And those Branch Davidians, they had thumbed their nose at lawful authority. You think you're higher than the red, white and blue? How dare you? And, and yeah, and that means we'll kill all your kids too. We'll kill everybody. How you're not allowed to get away with this and certainly not at the expense of days of our lives and the price is right. Well, it's, it's interesting. There was a split among uh, conservatives. Uh, The American spectator was very critical of Waco. I think from the start, I think national uh, review was uh, pro government on that. There was, there was one line, which looking at that, uh, my, piece I did uh, for uh, Wall Street Journal in uh, May of 95, Waco must get a hearing. The last line of that was, the ghosts of Waco will continue to haunt the U.S. government until the truth is told about what the government did and why. And those ghosts of Waco are still haunting the U.S. government. Yeah, I got that right. Well, and they're going to, uh, even after all the truth is out, because it just shows how guilty they are. And, and it ain't like they said they were sorry or anything. Uh, they still lie about it to this day. And, you know, I guess I haven't looked very close at this, but I've been told that there are three new books out that all say, oh, isn't this an unfortunate series of some mistakes were made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to let them get away with that. Um, there's just, you can't spin, regardless of exactly how the fire started, which I don't think anyone knows exactly for sure, although there's certainly reason to believe, as we talked about with those flashbangs and the CS gas that um, it was the government that started that fire, whether deliberately or not. But you just can't spin the machine gun fire 
from the men that get out of the tanks. There's just no way to make that go away. That was either the hostage rescue team or it was the Delta Force or both. And, and there are two witnesses in the second movie, New Revelation there, Gene Cullen, a CIA officer, and Stephen Barry, a former Special Forces guy from the Army, who says that they were both told firsthand, and it's hearsay, but I'll, you know, sustained. Um, uh, I'll allow it, as they say. Um, they both say that they were told personally by members of Delta Force Team B that they participated in a firefight. Those are the words of Cullen. And then uh, pulling triggers was the way Stephen Barry put it. And I think in both cases, very credibly. That, yep, that's what they told me, all right. And that yeah, goes well, to show that it wasn't just Reno. And Bill Clinton later admitted this. And I have somewhere the Fox News clip from Tony Snow or uh, Britt Hume maybe doing the news where uh, Bill Clinton in a deposition where he's being, I'm pretty sure it was a judicial watch deposition about his relationship with James Riotti, admitted that one, he watched Waco burn with James Riotti, his Chinese intelligence connection, you know, <laughs> financier, and um, that, yes, he gave the final approval to Janet Reno to go ahead, which was something that had always been in, omitted from the story before. They made it sound like it was all her. And at the end of his presidency, he admitted that she came to him and or the FBI came to him, and he's the one who gave the order. And, of course, he's the only one who could have ordered the Delta Force. I mean, they could have ordered themselves, I guess. But if they were operating under anyone's authority, it wasn't Janet Reno's. Yep. Well, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to your... Uh upcoming podcast in Waco talking to Dan Gifford and stuff like that. I'm sure you'll have a lot of great stuff and some new information. Uh, yep. There's going to be some stuff in there. That's for sure. Now to wrap up here, Jim, uh, and we don't have too much time and I know it's a bit complicated, but I was wondering if you could take us through a little bit of what happened at this trial and the screwy way these people were acquitted, but then half convicted anyway. And what in the hell happened with that? Well, it was a uh, typical federal court trial where you had a federal judge who uh, blocked the defense attorneys from uh, introducing a lot of the evidence of government misconduct. Uh, I think he came out and said that the government's not on trial here. And once you have that storyline, when there's been a lot of government violence, a lot of dead bodies, you know, it's uh, basically letting the government skip uh, blame free. Um, but the jury verdict, the feds were hoping for a lot of murder convictions. The jury threw that back in their face and the federal prosecutors, uh, the uh, lead prosecutor burst out in tears when the jury verdict was read because it was far less, um, uh, far less punitive than what the feds had hoped for. Uh, the, uh, news media had headlines that the government lost the uh, case. But uh, there was kind of there was some murky stuff in the jury verdict, and you had Judge Walter Smith come back and twist the uh, verdicts and slapped on a bunch of additional prison sentences that would not have been justified by any reasonable interpretation of the jury verdict. So that was bad faith by the judge, but he'd shown bad faith throughout the trial. Yeah, man, it's something else. All right, look. Um it's 30 years ago, but for some reason it just won't go away, this Waco thing. And as you said there, it's because there's no accountability. There's no honesty. You could take a class, a psychology class or a history class or a Texas government class, and you could learn all about how those people killed themselves. 
Uh, well, you know, Scott, I learned that in junior college that it was a crazy cult, just like Charles Manson and just like Jim Jones. And that's all you need to know. Wow. Well, uh, uh, there's a lot of this is still a very important issue. And I really appreciate how you're keeping Waco on the radar screen. And I appreciate I'm looking forward to the upcoming work you have on it. Cool. Well, thank you, Jim. And thank you so much for participating with me here and all your great work on this issue over the years, man. It means a lot. Thanks so much. All right, you guys, that's the great Jim Bovard. He's at jimbovard.com. And his latest book is Public Policy Hooligan. You'll love it. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.